Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Philacrosophy podcast. Very fired up to have Virginia head coach Lars Tiffany on the show. LT, how you doing, man? Uh, we're doing great. Enjoying a snow day. Rare, very rare. Make sure the recruits know very rare day of snow day here. Very rare. Although, just a week or two ago, you told me you went snowboarding down your street. Okay, maybe not very rare, just more on the rare side. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually woke up this morning and tried to snowboard again down uh, the Florida trail run which is normally a road hill but um um it was not my best ride not my best ride but i got out there this morning it was it was uh it was fun to have the snowboard in hand that's awesome um yeah well everybody knows virginia's got pretty awesome weather and you know it's nice it's just a nice change up when you can go snowboarding in the neighborhood (laughs) just a typical day you know water skiing with tom dwyer you know uh in philadelphia during the final four snowboarding uh before loyola why not yeah, why not, man? Um, so this is our third attempt at the podcast over the last month. We've been sidetracked many times. Um, the first time, about a month ago, we were going to do a podcast, and we started talking about and watching film on individual defense. I had put together this spreadsheet, which took me like a week to figure out how to like uh, make the privacy settings available for you. Uh, yeah. But um, I wanted to kick off our conversation to sort of talk about that um, and some of the things that you learned and, and, and what we were sort of talking about and how it may have changed your, your view on, on defense footwork-wise. It, uh, it, it had a dramatic impact. It was, you're right, it was just before we were beginning our uh, preseason training in mid-January. And so you, you spend a lot of time as a coach preparing, preparing, have a plan, and then Jamie Monroe jumps into your life and someone throws a hand grenade, but it's a good hand grenade. Because, you know, about two days before we were about to start, 
um, it was such a compelling argument you made showing us these clips of fantastic defensive midfielders and how they play the ball, how they position their footwork, whether it's the, uh, the, the quick hip turns versus drop stepping. And I immediately said, we have to employ this. We have to bring this to our defensive midfielders and our close defensemen, but more so our defensive midfielders. And, and so uh, it was uh, sort of revolutionary. I, I wish I'd given myself a couple of weeks, not a couple hours to get the men ready for it. But um, it's, um, it's, it's made a difference for some of our men. Some of our DMIDs bought right in. Others are going to stick with their traditional uh, drop step approach. Yep. But others are who are, I think are more athletic, who are quicker, are really enjoying coming out towards the midfield line, getting out to the, you know, using a football number, the 40, even the 45 yard line and, um, and using, utilizing hip turns, quick football turns and doing more running with their, uh, with the Dodger. Yeah. It's interesting because, because basically I think that if you left it to their own devices, they would probably, and they do use the hip turn concept more so than a drop step. Although sometimes they've been trained to drop steps so often to back off and drop step that they end up sort of changing what, what they might naturally do. Cause I see so many natural hip turns going on on really on both sides of the ball where they're just really putting force into the ground rather than the pivot. Right. Right. And, and, and I appreciated when you said that, like if you, if you took the coaching out of it and if, if you stepped away and let the men do what they're going to do, what you are now discovering, you know, would naturally occur. And, uh, um, and the, and the big plotters, the big, the slower plotters would naturally plant a foot, open up their hips, drop step, turn and run. Um, but yeah, the, those, those better athletes, uh, you know, as we saw with the, uh, with the PLL, as you exposed some of the elite D-middies, um, it was, uh, it was opening, such as, yeah. you know, seeing Bernhardt, for example, Jake Bernhardt, such a good example. So many guys. Um, how would you describe, so the so people listening could understand what we're talking about, how do you describe the difference between a hip turn and a drop step, and what's the advantage? Yeah, the, the hip turn is, it's now, it's literally, think about you, both your feet being off the ground at the same time. Now, if raise your hand if you were cringing when you first heard Jamie Monroe or me say that. Yes, I cringed at first. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. My whole life, it's like, Ah, if you've got both feet in the ground, how can you change direction? Where can you go? Uh, you've got to keep one foot in the ground. And, um, you know, it's talking with you last month. I was like, well, we're not talking about jumping as high as you can and trying to get airborne for up to a second. You know, we're just talking about quickly taking both feet off the ground to change your angle. And, um, and so that's where I think of it distinctively. What's the difference between a drop step and a hip turn? A hip turn, you're literally going to be off the ground with both your feet for a 10th of a second, maybe. Yeah. Um, whereas the drop step, you are going to plant a foot and then open up your, you know, sort of the groin and hips and, and plant and run and pivot. Right. It's like a foot repositioning is what you're doing with the hip turn, right? You're repositioning yes. your foot and it allows you to put force into the ground. So if you were on defense and somebody was splitting you to your left hand, you would, your feet would come mm -hmm. off the ground and you'd put force into your left foot, which would then allow you to be, even though it might take a little bit longer at first to do that, 
what the advantage is, is the force that you put into the ground with your left foot and then your hips getting over your right foot to put force into that step. Whereas with your drop step, you'd be opening up and pivoting on that left foot with less pop and therefore slower to get over your, your right foot to be able to get your hips over that foot. Exactly. I think that's why that happened, why it works. Exactly. Yeah, I just like how, how, how much quicker you can be moving on a different vector, a different angle. Yeah. And you're not losing strength. Yeah, for a tenth of a second, you're airborne, but you know, we're not we're not worried about a tenth of a second here, right? You know, boom, and then you're running with them and, and you've you've got some power as you land. Yeah, it's um it's yeah, I just like how quickly you can maneuver and run. The other thing that people should realize is that when you're approaching somebody, you can't be jumping in the air when they're making their move, right? So you th this is about your same approach of like breaking down and getting there are going to be the same as they would always be. It's really just once you're in position with a good approach that you're going to react with a foot repositioning or hip turn rather than a pivot or back off, which gives you less power. And these PLL shorties too, they jack the crap out of guys because they've got the power of that hip turn. Yeah, no, that's a really good point to clarify, right? As I'm 10 yards away from you as you're the offensive player and I approach we're not talking about, you know, jump, you know, arrivals. We're not talking about yeah, that. We're talking about, and so I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because, yeah, that, those will get you uh, what they call, you know, the air ball where I'll completely miss you if I, if I put my, both my feet in the air and then land to get into a good defensive positioning. Now it's, I'm already in a defensive position, and now that's where I'm going to do those hip turns. And you might get airballed anyways. And, and, and honestly, I watched, there's some clips of, of Jake Bernhardt where, like, Miles Jones kind of gave him a really good little left to right, right to right move. And he did get a little bit airballed, but because he, he used his hip turn, he caught right up on a trail check and he was so explosive coming out of that thing that it allowed him to recover. And I think that's part of, uh, part of that advantage, which I find really interesting. Yeah. And, and I guess I've struggled because for all my years coaching, I've, I've had that dichotomy you know, a, a choice for our D-Middies. Do you want to go out and make contact near the midline or do you want to wait near the top of the box? And, and, uh, and I've given the, our short safety middies those choices and, and LSMs and saying, you know, hey, I, without really diving into why, why are some guys better out there? Why are some guys better, you know, closer in? And, um, and then just talking with you last month and then exposing it to our men and some of them buying in and some not, what I'm finding is the faster athletes, the guys who are, you know, better straightforward or just quicker athletes in general, they want to get out there, you know, because they would struggle for years of me saying, okay, no, stay here. Let them come to you, plant, drop step, turn, run. I've, in a sense, I've taken away their advantage. I've taken away that quickness and athleticism. Right. And, um, and so uh, now my short stick immediates were more powerful, stronger, but less fleet of footed. They like staying back because they're like, coach, he'll come to me. If he tries to beat me to the middle, I'll give him a, I'll give him my check, my chunk, and then I'll trail him down the alley. Right. Yeah. And some of the athletes, we, we looked at the film too. And sometimes those PLL athletes would look, go way out, pick somebody up as they're coming out of the box and they would turn their, they would pre-turn their hips. So their, their, their butt is facing the midline and they're just running with you. And that's really not like a hip turn. That's just like, I'm going to get all the way out and it's just easier for me to run with you and jack you on, along the way than it is to give you a, a 15 yard run at me. And that's where, you know, there's a little bit of a comfort level there too, probably. There is because now it's like, 
if, you know, and I'm not talking about myself, but if I was a faster athlete, I'd rather just run with somebody as opposed to be stationary waiting for someone. And so you're right. I think that, and now you can be a bit disruptive too. You know, there's some teams, some teams we play that their D middies are out there 10, 15 yards above the top of the box near the midline, you know, disrupting our offensive midfielders hands. And I'm like, man, that doesn't seem like good team defense if you're that far out, but it's working. He's being disruptive and, and huh. And so when you and I talked last month, I'm like, okay, now this is probably some of the thoughts behind what that defensive coach is allowing that D midi to do right. um, because he can run as opposed to shuffling or drop stepping, which is much slower. Yeah. And it's like, why start all the way out there with your start the race with your back to the goal when you can start facing the goal right next to your guy and just run exactly. it. If you're just Very as fast. And if you're faster, you know, then, then you're golden. Exactly. Right. I know. And, and then you had some great clips showing that um with some of these elite d middies uh like bernhardt and and tyler warner was was very good and i'm yeah. forgetting I'm, I'm missing a couple others right now but there, there's some really good clips you had no doubt and it's interesting too because sometimes you're just going to catch the ball you'll, you'll see jake bernhardt go all the way out and, and turn his hips you know and run with somebody from the coming out of the box and you'll see him you know approach somebody just at the at the two-point line where he has to now just deal with the fact that the guy's going to shake him. He's going to have a little bit of a run on him because it was an approach off of a pass. And now he's going to use that hip turn foot repositioning technique. And, and really you, you kind of want to be able to, to do both. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of the key is you, you, you got to be able to play guys when they, when they went off the approach. But the question is, can you run with people when they're, when they're, when they're extended way out or coming out of the box? Yeah. And that's the question why not all D middies are built this way. (laughs) And, uh, you know, for example, our guy, John Fox, you know, fantastic D midfensive midfielder for us, a captain for us. He shouldn't be hanging out, you know, in the deep water out there. He wants to stay in the shallow end. Yeah. And just use his physicality and his quickness. All these guys have some burst. It's interesting too, to, to sort of look at the way these shorties change direction behind the net. Like if they're getting rolled back on, like someone splits, right, rolls back left and you'll see them use the foot repositioning with the way they change direction, they jump their feet off the ground and explode out of their cuts, jump cuts. Yes. Uh, as opposed to a pivot, which you would think you should do, which we've worked on endlessly. Yes. That pivot, open up, drop step. Um, so it's, and, it's all interesting. And which our close defensemen, none of our close defensemen changed. That's so ingrained in who they are. And yeah. they do have the advantage of the six foot stick too. Yeah, um, but yeah, they're just behind the goal. I we tried it for a couple of days and in, in mid January and I was like, okay, you know, it, we tried, you know, it's in, it's in your back of your head. If you want to work on it next summer, you know, but uh, we're, we're good for now. <laughs> I bet if you look at it too, some of the guys just do it. Don't even know they do it. And they're, they're, they're probably your quicker guys. Mm-hmm. Right. Good you know, point. But the guys that aren't that quick, you know, it, you know, I, I think about Matt Landis and the way that he would play defense. His stick wasn't usually out in that traditional Notre Dame fashion. His stick was a little more 45 degrees. He moved laterally and jacked guys along the way because he could and all of a sudden they would end up farther wide by the time they got to the island than somebody that was backing off with their stick out backing off with your stick out does give you nice ball pressure but it's going to give you give up a little more position and you just have to kind of decide what you feel good about with that player or as that player because if you're not that quick you certainly don't want to you don't want to airball somebody and, and like right. try to foot reposition and get juked 
you know, um, and it kind of depends on your matchup too, but it is, uh, it's all interesting stuff to sort of think about because essentially we're teaching what we were taught rather than necessarily looking at exactly what is happening. Yeah, I know. And that's what, uh, and that's what, you know, to, to praise you, even though it's your podcast, but you know, that's what you've always pushed the boundaries of what's been traditionally. I mean, I remember one time you talked about what is fundamentals? Why is this a fundamental? Like you made me think like really basics, like, cause it's been told to me, it's always a fundamental, you know, of a certain way to throw a pass or shoot the ball or, you know, and uh, yeah. So you've always pushed the boundaries of, uh, of the norms. And, and, uh, and that's why I've really enjoyed talking to me about this over the years. Love it. What you, were, what you were just talking about there, you're right. You know, sometimes it's the defender and sometimes it's the matchup and yeah. you and I have hit on this before, you know, as a defender, as a close defenseman, if I was guarding a feeder, I want that my six foot stick pointed out. You know, I want to get on that bottom hand and be disruptive. Now as a close defender, if my matchup is a dodger, someone who's going to power smash into me, this is wasting. This is a waste of my time. This is putting me in worse position. I need to, you know, as you were just talking about, Landis doesn't necessarily going to have a stick point out. I'm going to be here, but I can go out there further. Mm-hmm. I can make contact sooner right? and big for a defenseman or offensive, offensive players. A lot of times the matchup, who's initiating the contact doesn't always work that way, but for the mo- more so than not, we find who initiates the contact is in a better position. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's switch gears to a little team defense here. Um, and let's talk about fundamentals and principles. I'm really into this conversation. Um, would you say that your principles on defense guide you and your team? Yes. Um, I got to know when I got to change and make alterations, um, whether it's an individual skill development. For example, I remember Quentin Matsui, who's a second year force. When he arrived, I've tried to change his stance and approach talking about, I, w- I was trying to make him a stick out front guy. He's much more comfortable here. He's a really good athlete. He's got great hip turns. He's the, one of the close defensemen who does the hip turn. I have seen him, and playing high school football out in Minnesota. I flew out there during the recruiting process to watch a game. And this one time he's a middle linebacker, you know, for Eden Prairie, big time football out there. And, you know, he takes a step forward on the snap, but then it's a pass. And all of a sudden he does a hip turn and then a hip turn and a hip turn. All of a sudden he's like eight yards off the, you know, the line of scrimmage looking for a tight end, you know? And I was like, that was ridiculous footwork. (laughs) That is awesome and uh and so he's a better athlete and so he's a close defenseman who's much more comfortable getting in your grill and getting out there so i don't know if i'm answering your question directly but i'm kind of tying in with the conversation we started with you know it's like when as a coach do i have to say you know i really like this but man it he this is his strength this is what's going to suit him better so um i have so I, I would hope that I'm somewhat adaptable. I definitely have our principles, but I hope that I'm adaptable based on who we have. And, yeah. uh, you know, at Brown, we had fantastic long stick middies, Larkin Kemp, Jake Miller, Alec Tullett. And, um, you know, they're sticks. They could pick up anything. They could pick off anything. So we might be baiting you a little bit more in skip lanes. And, um, and, and Larkin Kemp, I mean, we, literally we went into some games. What's the slide scheme? It's the Larkin Kemp slide scheme. We're going to try to win matchups and then we're going to let Larkin just take off and make double teams occur or slide patterns, or he'll send somebody. And, um, 
and I, that blows me away that that was a plan at one point during my coaching career, but that's, that's who we, what we had. And that just, it worked, it worked for that group. We had John Yazo Scaparato who could win matchups as a short safety committee. So we didn't have to slide as much. Um, now, you know, it's, um, you know, we're a little bit, we're still really good off the ground, but we're not like that expert ice hockey player level. So it's a, um, it's a, it's a different mindset with what our personnel, what matches up. But I think, I think I would still probably say I'm a bit more stubborn. Here's the system and, uh, and let's guide you into that. Yeah, totally. And, and everybody has the things that they like to do. And it's usually based on what you think your players can do. Um, the interesting thing is the difference between technique and, and, and principle. So, so the technique is stick out or hip turn. Uh, the principle would be being hard to beat. Right. Like, yes. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. We really want to be able to win our matchups. We want to be hard to beat. The other principle is we need to be able to read that. And regardless of whether it's Larkin Kemp, that's like going to like be looking for double team opportunities or sending people or whether it's, you know, current day Virginia, you guys have to figure out and read the quality of defense on the ball. And that's kind of where I'm going with generally speaking with, with principles, because the only way you can truly be totally schematic is against an offense that is totally schematic. Otherwise you have to base it on principles. And we've talked about this Mm -hmm. where it's like, all right, guys, you're on your own because I don't really know what they're doing. So I can't actually give you a perfect scheme on this. And, and can you talk a little bit about like how your principles fit into those two concepts of going against a scheme that you're pretty comfortable of what this, what they're doing versus when you have no idea because they're not really running anything that is totally um, able that, that, that you can actually read. Exactly. And so, yeah, you get back to the sort of fundamental conundrum of, how controlling and how invasive are you as a coach on game day? And we've talked about this from an offensive perspective as a defensive perspective that, yeah, the more patterned you are, the more involved I feel like, even though I'm standing on the sidelines, I can be with a week of preparation and even on game day, uh, as I, as we're looking at the plays and we have the iPads and can review them on the sidelines and look at those as well. And so it can really sort of set the pieces of a chess match. And, um, and, and so the, and so it's, it's, it's interesting the way you put it with the principles, it can almost be less principle based and more scheme based. Right. Um, and, um, and, and that can be very advantageous to the, my team and my coaching staff to a fault Sometimes though, sometimes you get so programmed, like I know exactly what they're going to do. I want you to do this. You stand here, you go there. And so you got to be careful about doing too much of that. And I, cause I've, I've been guilty of that over the years when you see a really programmatic schematic offense, you're like, okay, I know exactly how to stop this play. Ooh, this other scheme. I'd want a slightly, I'd want a different slide package. Am I going to make the defense do two different slide packages based on where the ball's being dodged? Have I, now you could, if you've been teaching your men for a couple of years, how to adapt, if you've been working on it in pre-practice, you know, versus skeleton, do you, do you switch from one side scheme to another, you know, in the middle of October, you know, against air, or are you presenting this two days before the Cornell game and trying to experiment with something? And so that's, that's where it fundamentally is. How much are you preparing your men to be able to switch gears? So, so in terms of our principle base, when we arrived in Virginia, the, the agenda immediately we realized was to make smarter defensemen because we wanted to be able to make those adjustments. Not necessarily because we wanted to match up to every scheme, but 
to give them eventually the tools so that when they were out there, they could adapt without me being too involved. So for example, as you saw, um, we were fortunate to be in a final four and win a national championship to 2019. We played with a very different scheme set from Saturday against Duke to Monday against Yale. And we were able to shift that because we practiced that in fall balls, talked about it against air, worked on it against air, done it in practice in 66. And so it wasn't, for example, okay, their UVA always slides cross crease versus Dodger Max or UVA is going to slide early to everything. You know, we were able to change that and through those reps. So I guess one of the principles therefore, for me, it was really, really important to have a defense that can be multifaceted and really be a thinking defense. So therefore the onus is on me is to create drills where we get all those extra reps. And so what I've loved is in our first 15 minutes of practice, when the offense is at one end and goalies are at the other end, we're in the middle and we're just doing like, I've got three imaginary goals set up. So there's six, five or six guys on each imaginary goal. I'm like, okay, balls top left. Let's slide and let's rotate if they throw a pull pass back to the middle. Okay, boom. Now the ball's behind invert. Let's get into an invert zone defense. Boom. And we're trying to get a bunch of reps every day like that in those first 15 minutes so that I'm training them to, to be able to pull that off once we get into game day. And defense is naturally kind of read and react. And that's, that's, you know, once you have sort of this understanding of how the different ways that you can, you can defend things, then it becomes communication and read and react. Correct. Yes. And, 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 you know, for example, there was one time we were playing, um, I was playing Duke in the final four and you know, some of those extra work and extra reps, we got into a, um, it was a five V five situation. They had one of our offensive middies, um, you know, statute or trapped on the, on our defensive end. And it was an offensive midi who was a first year freshman who we just weren't sure he would know the slide scheme. So we were like, Hey, just, you're out, just lock your guy. Yeah. And, and then Duke went into a set that put us in a pinch. It was like, Oh boy. Um, and I remember Logan Greco, um, he was a, a senior defender for us. He put us in the exact right defense for that look. Um, and, uh, and we made the play, put the ball on the ground and got the ball cleared and survived that five on five with an offensive midi trapped on our defensive end. And, and um, that was just one of those incredible, like rewarding moments as a coach, because, you know, during the pre-practice 15 minutes, you know, zero versus six, three imaginary goals, we've probably done that 15 or 20 times, you know, and bam, he hits it right when at the moment of truth. So it's, um, yeah. So I would say for us, the principle to get back to that, we, we were trying to create these scenarios and go through them and get them to communicate and talk and go through it. And I tell you what, I really, I, I wish I'd been doing this imaginary goal thing, you know, three along because for so many years, I did have one imaginary goal or one real goal and have all the defense stand around watching while f five or six guys were going through a slide scheme. Hey, let's work on this slide scheme, but it's so much better having these three at the same time, even though I don't see it all, they're correcting each other. I don't need to be yeah. ever present. I mean, I, I got Kyle Kaloji at one end. I don't even have to go to that side. He's telling everybody what to do and he's talking through things and the ownership and the value of having people engaged and involved as opposed to standing there and, and me turning going, everyone got it? And they all go, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're good. And, and, and by, 
by having them lead and quality control and, and essentially run what you're talking about, which oftentimes is the most important part because you want to, once you kind of figure out what the scenario is, you actually have to create a read within that scenario, right? Yes. That you're going to react to. Yes. That's where the read and react comes. And when your players understand what that is, like, oh, you know, this is, we're going to work on a righty alley dodge and we know that this guy's a lefty and he's going to roll back. And if he does, we got to, you know, we have to be able to like make that happen. A, mm -hmm. <laughs> overplay the guy a little bit so that he rolls back to the middle so you can get, you know, a slide to a rollback to a classic lefty who rolls back, whatever the look is. But when your players are smart enough to communicate that and actually do that, they're, they're, you're, you've gotten to a new level of, of IQ and, and you're, you're, you're basically teaching that all day long. Exactly. And it's, it's teaching the language. It's reinforcing your language. You know, it starts with the first years. The first years come in and they'll have their terminology that they brought from their high school team or their club team. And so you got to get that out of them. No, no, no. This, this is how we talk. This our second slide is called this. And this, the recovery is called this. And so you just go through the reps of the communication, but then you're right. So with those air reps, it's, we're obviously not reading or reacting. They're going against air against imaginary Dodgers, you know, okay, let's go big little invert. Okay. There's a big little pick. We're going to get through this pick and then slide from, you know, the crease, boom, go. And, and, and just rep it, rep it, rep it. Um, I know the high school coaches, they have less time. They don't have fall ball per se, but I think it's valuable just getting those, getting those extra reps, getting that, that communication and thinking time. Again, that's what we value. You know, there's some really good teams out there that keep it much simpler for their defense, yep. um, you know, and win your matchups. And, you know, so I guess when you mentioned that earlier about principles, winning our matchup is not a principle per se for us, but it's so valued. If you've got that short safety midi, you don't have to slide much for, or you've got that elite cover guy, you know, no one's going to completely neutralize a Patrick Spencer oh, for, for sure. or a Michael Sowers. But do you have somebody who can keep that guy to five points, you know, and, and not be sliding to every time he touches the ball? You know, and, and so those there's certainly value on having elite cover defenders. Your matchup may not be the principal, but being hard to beat would be. Being hard to beat. You know, making it take longer, playing as well as you can for as long as you can. I mean, if you get beat fast, it's a problem. You know, you got to at least be hard to beat. <laughs> yeah. I think what I'm, I will say was a principle for us, and it's not unique, is we want to be aggressive with our slides, um, as in we're, we want to slide more so to double the ball than necessarily support it. So what I'm meaning, I think some of the best team defenses, and we're still trying to get there, we're not there yet, the best team defenses, they don't necessarily dodge, they don't necessarily slide to that initial dodge, and they don't necessarily slide to a dodge where the guy's running down the alley and he could shoot from 13 yards. But as the ball gets swung through X and put to the backside and that guy backside catches it at 15 and he makes his move. And now he's getting inside what we call the red zone. We call the red zone 11 yards and in. You're going to get jumped. You are going to get doubled, whether it's a normal crease slide or if we see the back of your neck. And I see some of the best defenses do that. We're still getting there. But that concept of, you know, you hear some people protect the paint, protect the hub. But, you know, we'll let some dodges go down the alley, but as you get closer inside what we call that red zone, that's where we want to be really aggressive and sliding more to double than sliding the support. Is one of your principles to try to tie up the Dodger? Yes, absolutely. There is no question. I'm a big V-hole guy. And so typically you think V-hold on the corners. 
you're a righty dodger, I'm a righty defender, V hold. You're a lefty dodger, I'm a lefty. You know, that was some of the, what I alluded to earlier with Quentin Matsui. You know, he, yeah. he, he wants to fist hold both sides. I'm like, God, I really like you as a righty against that righty attack and V holding because now you got the natural hook when we slide from the crease or cross crease to getting that double team. Well, we've tried to introduce that up top as well, which is a, which is less common. But if you were to, to attack me and start trying to beat me as a righty to the middle and I'm a righty pole, do I chunk, fist hold, punch? Or if you start beating me, do I go to the V hold? And for our defense, that's a trigger. You know, that's we just dropped a piece of red meat, you know, on the ground. Boom, dogs. If you see a teammate get someone in a V hold, it's like go. Doesn't you know you don't necessarily have to have to, right. but if I got somebody in a V hold, I don't have great control of them, but I know I can roll them this direction. Yeah, I can roll and them right. Like the, uh, I love the Jerry Byrne terminology of capturing, capturing a Dodger in a V hold because that's really what you're kind of doing. They're, they get stuck in there a little bit, like by you yeah. kind of give with them. Exactly, and and then so yeah, that that would be a, a principle for us. So for example, we just played West Point, and um, we did a good job once West Point kind of smashed in on a re-dodge. You know, they would dodge, move the ball, and they got some big athletic midfielders. And they're looking to initiate contact. And if we can make that contact and get a little V-hold, bam, that was a trigger to make that play. Um, and, uh, and now we're getting ready for Loyola, who it's a different offense, where they're going to re-dodge and then step away really well. They're 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 going to be slicker with once you get them in a V hold or you try to engage. They're going to step away and move it. Well, the reason we know that we we play Loyola every year, and it's always usually the first game of the year, and uh, when we play them in the NCAA tournament, so we've we've seen them a lot, and they're tougher to get into that that double, the capture as you're using from Jerry Byrne. They're tougher to capture. Yeah because they're in and out and they're faking you probably and trying to take you away. And then it becomes the chess match between the players. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that's where you get the fun, right? The raw, you know, you got Kate Southstad versus Michael Sowers, you know, and uh, um, some of those, uh, those matchups that we've seen and, you know, some of the best ones out there. Yeah. You know, and it's a, um, that, yeah, that's where it really gets fun. You know, for example, Jared Connors, our LSM, he's a fa fantastic lacrosse player, but he doesn't get dodged often as an LSM, and most LSMs don't. Um, but when he got to go against Notre Dame, you know, Costabile, he was going at Jared, and and those were good battles. Jared didn't win them all. Costabile would get him sometimes, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where you just man, you get those juices flowing as a as a defenseman as an LSM. Like man, he he knew he was going to have to bring his game because you know, an elite midfielder was going to attack him, you know, and, and using, you know, moves. So I got to watch those guys get after it for three years. Um, and uh, would have been a fourth year here, but Kasaba obviously decided to move on. And uh, and we're fortunate to have Jared back. But, um, yeah, some of those, it's those classic ones you see over a few years. It's fun to see how they evolve. The epic matchups of the uh, Virginia-Notre Dame game. <laughs> the... Uh... The Ryder Garnsey and Garrett Eppel, and then you got Michael Krause and all these guys. I mean, there were some like huge, huge 
games and huge goals and huge matchups. It seems like every time you guys play, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that that is a, and that over the years, that's been a really tough one because not only do you have to win your matchup, but you know, they've got a defense that's ready to help. Um, you know, having just played West Point, so athletic, you know, guys are just chewing on nails for lunch instead of eating a sandwich. Right. And it's just, just tenacious, tough, they've, what they've always been. And, you know, they're extending out and beating on our attackmen. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, fellas, this is old school. You know, Matt Moore, you've got Marcus Hudgens on you. He, Marcus might be the best athlete in college across and uh, they're not going to slide for him. And it was a great, it was great to see that battle this past weekend. Um, Matt did score twice one-on-one with him, but it was never like he ran by him and got one-on-one with a goalie from three yards. He, he would kind of smash into him, step away and shoot from 12 and score, you know, and uh, which was, which was saying a lot too. I mean, that's, that's a big deal against Hudgens um, and a good goalie behind him with Schupler. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's fun. I, I know that's really fun for the players when, you know, it's kind of when you and I were playing for Dom yeah, when your matchup, that's all it was. And, uh, uh, mono, 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 mono. Um, I want to talk about principles on offense and then relate it back to your thoughts on defense. I've been thinking so much about this. I think if you ask most coaches, they would tell you that the principles on offense are, are the guiding principles for every offense that they run, you know, such as, you know, uh, possessing the ball, good shots, um, uh, you know, shots with good angle, uh, swinging the ball, uh, clearing space for Dodgers, um, you know, maybe two man games, maybe big little, maybe off ball picks, maybe, you know, spacing. You think about all these, like, there's probably like 10 or 15 key principles. Um, how do those principles, change do you think when somebody starts running a specific offense because i've been thinking about this and i think we chatted about this last week a little bit on our second attempt to do a podcast where we got sidetracked but um, i've been thinking a lot about the fact that these principles are the most important part of your of your offense but then when you start having a structured offense the structure of the set or the motion will take precedence over the principles of the offense based on just like, we might say, well, we'd rather dodge wings. You know, we know wings will give us sticks to the middle and a better shooting angle. And, you know, but all of a sudden we're, we're in a one, three, two. So we're dodging alleys and our righty, you know, we're, we're just naturally just doing some things that no, maybe don't fit into the principles that we would want to have. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your thoughts of that as, as a defensive guy and your thoughts on offense on that? Yeah. I appreciate you asking about this. I've, uh, uh, huge football fan, so I, I love the analogies of football. And I think about how it's interesting how it's in it's reversed. You know, the the, the football, the, the defensive line in football. You know, it's not it, it's a it's not the most complicated position. It is when that football moves. You know, go kill the guy with the football. Now I know there's some other things there. You got to figure out a draw play and a screen pass. Got to try to decipher some of those things. Whereas the offensive lineman. They've got a lot more to do. First of all, they got to remember the count, but you know they've got zone blitz packages and and run packages. They got RPOs now. If there's you know they the front changes just you know the defense can move, the offense can't move just before the snap. So they've got to read and react to all that. So much more thinking going on. And for me, my analogy is, I think the best lacrosse is where your offense is kind of like your defensive line. Let's keep this simple. Let's have some basic principles like you talked about. 
And let's get it fundamentally down to this. Okay, you've got to run by somebody. And if you run by somebody and draw another guy, you move the ball. And if you can't run by somebody, then you're not one of our initiators. We'll find a different job for you, especially if you're an inside guy or something. But it's sort of just, let's keep this, let's keep this at a simpler level. And whereas defensively, lacrosse, we're more like the offensive lineman. All these different ways you could attack us, mm. we've got to be prepared for and communicate. So now take it to the next step, what you were just asking about. If you can, as if I'm the defensive coach and I can hear the other offensive coordinator, you know, getting upset with one of his players, that's not what we do. You're not supposed to roll back there. I'm, I put a smile on my face. I'm like, he's starting to restrict options and taking things away. Now, of course, there's some dumb thing, you know, there's some things that offensive players shouldn't do, but, but the more restrictions, because you've got a set scheme, um, you know, the way, this is what we do. And we're going to run this exact play a certain way. You start taking away your own principles that if, if Jamie Monroe had you on a podcast and he started off with, Hey, give me some of your basic principles. <laughs> Boy, 10 minutes later, Jamie might be saying, well, okay, let me show, let, can I pull up your offense? How come I don't see some of those principles in his offense? <laughs> and, and, and that could certainly happen. Right. And, um, because I think there's like these two parts of our brain, right? Yeah. Like, you know, what were the principles? And I know we're not saying fundamentals because I loved how you challenged the word fundamentals of the sport hmm. versus, Ooh, Ooh, I got this cool offense. I was watching, you know, uh, you know, Dave Metzbauer, this great, fantastic coach drew this up and I want to draw, I want to do this with my team and we're going to call it North Carolina or Princeton, wherever he was coaching at the time. And it's great. But then how long are you going to hold on to that? How stubborn are you going to be? I, um, and as you were alluding to about 10 minutes ago, you, you're now making yourself, you're not only being restrictive, but you're predictable. Right. And now as a defensive coordinator on the sidelines, I'm much more involved. And uh, as opposed to, man, if you just, you just give them some general patterns and some ideas and say, Hey, go make plays and be free. What am I supposed to do as a defensive coach? I've got to just, all right, we'll stick with our principles, but I don't have uh, too many nuggets for you here, fellas. Good luck. It's true. It's interesting. You think about a principle like two-man game. Well, what is that principle? Why is that a principle? Well, because it, it takes a defender out of the hole. So now if there's a slide, you're sending a third player to the two-man game. And now it's a four-on-three over there instead of a five-on-four. Um, and, you know, dodging wings. Why is that a principle or from behind? Well, because it naturally gets your stick to the middle more often, and you will score more goals with your stick to the middle. And you will get more assisted shots when you do a two-man game because there's a four-on-three over there instead of a five-on-four. So there's more skip passes and more, more space to, to, to cover for the defense. And, and then it's like, okay, well, what if one of our principles is sort of off-ball, off-ball picks? You know, because right now we're like, all right, exchange here, exchange. And it's like all of a sudden you're like, but dude, I, you're wide open. Why are you exchange? Ever do right. that with a kid? You're like exchange out top when we're doing our big little behind and then there's no one on the kid and he's still exchanging. And you're like ripping on the guy because he's doing what you told him to do, but he didn't read, actually read the situation. Whereas if you start doing off-ball picks, you start actually reading the defense of what they're doing. And maybe it will be an exchange because you just want to facilitate a ball swing. Or maybe you slip through the gap because they switched. 
or maybe yeah. you sealed somebody because they're sagged in. And then all of a sudden you're doing all the occupying that you would have had. You're still going to get matchup changes off the ball because they're going to zone it up. And then all of a sudden you've got no crease. You know, it's so interesting. Like a lot of times we'll say, well, let's run a one four because we want to dodge wings, you know, but then all of a sudden it's like, everybody knows how to, how to defend a one four because you got two guys in there and it becomes pretty easy to figure out how you're going to slide and help, even though it's not that you can't score against it. You can't, it's just harder to score when people know exactly what you're doing. Exactly. No. There's advantages of one four one offense, but I can sit there and scheme, you know, all week. All right. This is where our second slide will come from, you know, and, and, and taking some of that away. But I, um, I fundamentally, I think about three pillars, you know, of how to assess a college across team, you know, a team that has the ability to recruit, um, you know, Pillar one is your talent acquisition, the recruiting itself, the guys you bring in. Okay. So we're going to evaluate your coaching staff on how good a talent you bring in. Step two, the second pillar, how well do you develop your players, the individual player development? How much better do your players become while they're with you? Sure. There's bigger and stronger with the weight room and all that, but I'm going to more so on the lacrosse field, how much better lacrosse player do they become? And I'm also going to add in smarter. And then step three, how do you put the pieces together in your schemes and the implementation of the 66 or the 10 v 10, the bigger pictures of those three. So, you know, as I assess coaching staffs, I look at those three and, um, and some of the best are, are really good at all three of those. And you and I know that there's some like, wow, that school always gets really good talent. They just, they just don't seem to get better or the team doesn't, isn't successful. And then there's those other coaches. So like, I don't know any of his recruits. I don't even know the name of the starting players, but they're so good. They know their schemes and they're such tight ship and uh, they're a pain in the butt to play against, even though I've got all these five-star all Americans, you know, and he's got two and three stars. And so I, I look at those and I try to assess ourselves most importantly with this. Like, okay. Um, but to, to tie it into the answer here, Jamie, if we do the great job of recruiting really good players, and I've been fortunate to be at our alma mater, Brown, and now Virginia, highly acclaimed educational institutions where we can get good players. And then we do our job developing them. And obviously the young man and, and young men have to do their job too. You know, if, But if I do that really well, then why would step three, pillar three, would I restrict them? If I've recruited really good players and, and, I've, and they're smart players and I've made them better and they've made themselves better, let them be, <laughs> you know, give them some guiding principles and then let's go. Yeah. I recruited you. I worked your butt off. Now go do, you know, go make it, make it happen. <laughs> they'll surprise you too, because they'll do things that you never could have taught them. Yes. Yes. Oh, right. Cause and then sometimes that's the problem, right? Cause you and I will see like, Oh, what a cool cut they just did. We got to put that in our offense. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then we spend a week telling everyone, this is the cut you have to do. <laughs> I know it's so true. Well, let's, um, let's switch gears one last time and just talk a little bit about recruiting. Do you think we're going to have a summer where uh, you can actually watch players play? And, and, and in, in live, and that is live. Yeah, and not be next to my refrigerator and in air conditioning, <laughs> enjoying these games right on my computer, like I'm talking to you right now. This, which right. isn't that bad. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. You know, uh, it, it it will. Well, I mean, the NCAA dead period was extended last night to um, 
May 31st. The hope is that that gets us through the entire spring semester. And now they have a plan starting June 1 to open this thing up. Whether it's quiet or truly open, either way, um, it would be great to be able to get on the road. I mean, some of it's social, right? I, yeah. I, I want to see some guys. I want to see some people, some club coaches, some other peers of mine. And, uh, you know, that would be fun part. But, you know, seeing the guys, um, the live evaluation, there's certainly some advantages that can happen from that. Hearing them communicate, seeing some of the things off the field, you know, uh, picking up their teammates, you know, just, just little things are nice to pick up. And, and you just hear the scuttlebutt, too, when you're on the sidelines and hearing from people like, oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. For, forget him, Lars. You know, Notre Dame's been his dream school. His dad went to Notre Dame. You just pick up a little stuff like that. Now, certainly you can do that by text and phone, but sure. um, I, yeah, I, I, the crystal ball, is this going to happen or not? You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a quiet. I bet they, I bet there's some sort of transitionary phase of quiet, but. Well, if it's quiet, that means that you can get paid to go do something, right? Exactly. So quiet really means we're, we're out recruiting. Yeah, it, and there, there's a couple of need to get paid a little bit. You know, so much income was lost yeah. over this last year. I mean, losing another summer would be devastating for some some of these guys. Yeah. It would be, you know, because uh, you know it's not. We're we're fortunate here, in Virginia, you know, to be uh, well compensated and to be well supported. Um, but we do have a volunteer assistant, and but there's many many other college across programs where you know the young guy he's 24 years old he's he's uh, he's the second assistant making 20 grand maybe health benefits maybe not you know that summer 15 maybe 20 grand if he hustles that's so critical right and um, so the quiet period would at least allow them to get paid and to be at events and so if we can have a quiet period we'll be out there. Uh, it was just a limitless, for example, what was the juniors open that happened last summer down in Tennessee? That was an invite only camp. We can't work that event, but most events we could work. Yeah. Um, what's, what's your takeaway on what, what you kind of learned from recruiting virtually that, that you really like? And then what are the things you're like looking forward to that you're going to be able to do when you can actually see people? And you alluded to it a second ago, communication, and maybe size, speed, power. Um, but, but talk about that as well as the in-person visit part. Yeah, I will tell you the thing that I think the not, the non-ability to go out and evaluate live made us be sharper with our recruiting. And what I really liked about it was I got over myself. I used to think just, Hey, I don't need to watch. I don't need to, I'll take some recommendations. Sure. I got some coaches I trust. But I got a good eye. I'll get out there. You know, get, get me on the sidelines of way back in the day of top 205, you know, Jake Reed's, you know, and modern day with all these club tournaments and, uh, you know, Maverick Showtime. I got it. I, I just need to see a guy for a couple minutes and I can make some really good decisions. Well, that's wrong. And what I think this allowed us to do, it forced us to go through and evaluate players by film before the summer started. Now we had a lot more free time, right? Because from mid-March until the event started in June, we had some downtime. But my coaching staff, Sean and Kip, they put together a list of about 85 of the known top prospects. And we know we're missing some guys, but we put together films. And it, it was great because like, I'd watch maybe 10 a night and go through the films and we'd create rankings. And then 
go through all 85 and then we'd come and talk about it. And then I'd go back and watch them and I'm like, okay, let's put this guy's highlight film next to this guy's highlight film. They're both lefty attackmen. We, we thought they're more uh, finishers than initiators. Let's compare them. It, it, what it really allowed me to do was to go into the summer evaluation ports, which was all online, much better prepared. And uh, now I can't, you gotta be careful because I can't make decisions because these are a year old. And now what I'm watching is the development of younger men, of men who are starting to grow into the bodies and grow facial hair. And so I can't be locked in, but I tell you, Jamie, I felt like, you know, the way I was doing in the past was, was much more haphazard. This is the way, you know, you think like the elite coach, like a, like a Nick Saban, this is Nick Saban would do this. Like he would watch every film of you, Jamie, if he's going to recruit Jamie Monroe, he's gonna watch every film and get a piece of, and, and then he's going to, watch you live or online live and then he's going to make some decisions as opposed to you know the way i was doing so that that is something that even if we go back to normal in a couple of years i we have to find the time yeah to go through that process it was very effective doing it that way and so much better prepared as i arrive at maverick showtime and all that as moving forward yeah well and you got to um, do it at, you know doing it just in, in preparation is fine, but you got to do it, you know, during the summer too. I mean, you just got to watch it. It's kind of like Nick Saban watches every play. <laughs> He's going to watch every play. So if you're really recruiting somebody, you, you just want to know what they're doing because everyone's highlight tape looks pretty good. Yes. Yes. It's um. so in terms of the virtual recruiting, I'll give Sean and Kip credit there. I'm not saying we did the best in the nation, but I felt like we did some really cool things. Um, Part of it was we borrowed ideas from the Virginia Athletic Department. Uh, there were some cool Zooms between all the coaches of UVA. And, um, and during those, we said, hey, let's have a recruiting Zoom call. And so we got everyone's recruiting coordinator or somebody from each sport on there and just, you know, spitballing, throwing ideas out. And, you know, like women's volleyball, what they were doing with recruits. Where I was like, oh, my God, I was writing as fast as I could. And just some really cool things they were doing virtually. And, uh and then um, Sean Kerwin, he he saw South Carolina football, the um, you know the, the coaching staff, you know, outside a hotel, like welcome. This is where you're staying this weekend. Of course, they weren't coming to you know they they weren't going to South Carolina for a visit because no one was visiting. But the kind of the the virtual visit, and uh, we stole some really cool ideas, mostly from Virginia. And I thought I thought we did a pretty good job with it, and so we had a lot of fun with it, and. Um, so I think there's, there are definitely some things we will do moving forward because in the past you can, you know, we start talking to you September one, Jamie. Okay. Let's, let's set up a visit. We talk, bam. How much information we were sending you just a little bit, how much video we were sending to you? Not much, probably just, Hey, check our Instagram account. We got some cool videos up there, a highlight video from last year. This was like, whoa, we could expose you to professors, academic coordinators. We could expose you to my AD. And it, it only takes five minutes of our time. Like just the, the power of Zoom, all of us are seeing new ways we can do things, you know, like this right now. But it, that's, there's some things I'm really excited about moving forward, maintaining, even when we go back to normal. You had told me that in the past, you'd, when you'd have a recruit that you were serious about on campus, you might put them on the whiteboard and, and yes. ask them some questions. Um, and I was like, oh, you can't do that. But yeah, you can do that. Did you, did you continue that a little bit on the, uh, on the Zoom whiteboard feature? Did you get into conversations where you were trying to identify a, a, a prospect's understanding of the game through that type of conversation? 
Yes. And I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah. I stole that from football at Brown, you know, and uh, just talking one day in the locker room with the football coaches and just came up like, Oh yeah. You know, the positional coach, each recruits meets with his positional coach for at least 30 minutes. And we go on the board and we just assess his IQ, his, his acumen for the game. I was like, Oh my gosh, why have we not been doing that? And uh, you know, you and I've talked about some other cool things to do like three on three basketball would be awesome too. But <laughs> this was, it was like, Oh my God. Yeah, we got to do this. And, um, and so during the last year with the virtual tours and these presentations, um, we, uh, we would go through our game clips with a recruit and it was just, just, it was, it was natural. It was so easy. And, uh, um, and so we were going through Virginia versus an opponent and, um, you know, and, and if it was a defensive recruit, I was involved. It was offensive recruit coach Kerwin would do it and, you know, Give them the first few minutes. Hey, this is what we're doing. But then don't just talk at him. Make him talk. Make hey. So what do you see here? Who should have been the slide here? Did we slide too early? You know, what, what what's your thoughts on this rollback? Um, what do you, how do you guys do it at your high school? You know, what do you guys do with your what, what's your club team? What do you guys call if you go to an invert defense? You know, you know, what's the communication there? And and um, you know, there is no right or wrong answer. It's just you just are they, have they thought about this stuff before and yeah. how are they, how they, how they describe the answer as opposed to what the actual answer is. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was really cool. I was, again, I was give credit to Sean for setting those up. That is cool. I, I, uh, I do zoom calls with athletes, you know, once a week and we watch film and it's amazing when you, it's, it, it's, it would be the same thing with your athletes with, with your seniors versus your freshmen. By the end, they can watch film with you and they can articulate what should have happened. Why did that happen? Because they've watched a lot of film. And if you haven't yes. watched any film with, with you know, uh, especially with coaches that are kind of like pressing pause, watching, watching film run is one thing, but actually pressing pause and rewinding something and trying to figure out what happened and where everybody is when that happened is a different way of watching film and looking at things. So um, it's just, uh, it's really interesting. And it's something that athletes you can prepare for. And I'll tell you like, the, you know, I don't know if, if you've talked to any of the kids that I've been working with, but when you do, you're gonna be able to ask them questions and they're gonna be able to articulate stuff and it's gonna be interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting, the, the dichotomy, because you and I have talked about how, you know, as a coach, I've got to stop blowing the whistle when the goalie makes a save on the 66 one end. Yeah, I gotta let the clear go out. I gotta let the, you know, when the three v three drill, the ball goes on the ground, and I, I, I need to make a point, so I blow my whistle, as opposed to let them fight for the ground ball, you know, and and let the play go. It's almost the opposite when you're talking about with the film. Yeah, right? this is when it's okay to stop. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, this is where the the educational learning moments are. Exactly. And um, and so yeah, that film access is so critical. We had fun too. I just thought of it. We were doing. We would grab your highlight film. Oh, Jay Monroe recruiting you. Let's pop on your highlight film. You know, what'd you see here? You know, you got a really tight role there. How about a split? You know, you could talk about his dodging techniques. We could talk about the vision, the schemes. And and it was, it was a lot of fun, um, you know, stepping out of the norm and just redoing our jobs, you know, being 52 years old and redoing your job. I, I enjoyed the, uh, I enjoyed the new adventure. Yeah. Make the best of it. Well, LT, Good luck against Loyola. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I love talking lacrosse with you, man. It's so much fun, Jamie. Thanks for uh, pushing the boundaries of the, of the lacrosse envelope. <laughs> Good luck. Talk soon.